And you know, while Pastor was talking, I just did a quick calculation in my head, and I came to the realization that I've known Pastor uh, for 35 years now, for 35 years. And anybody that knows, now I was only two years old, so my memories wasn't that great, but for 35 years, I knew Pastor. And uh, anybody that knows Pastor well knows this. And, and see if you can't resonate with this. He, uh, he loves God with all of his heart. How many of you would agree with that? He loves his family. How many of you would agree with that? He loves his church. How many of you know that that is true? How many of you also know that he has a severe mischievous uh, streak in him? He is very mischievous. How many of you know that? I've known him 35 years, and let me tell you, that has not diminished one bit. He's just as mischievous today, trust me, as he's ever been before. That's a good thing. That's why we all love him and appreciate our pastor. Can we give our pastor a hand because we do love him and appreciate him? Well, let me ask you a question. When you get to heaven, do you have any questions for God that has not been answered here on earth? Got any? I think we all do. We all have a lot of questions. Maybe you can remember a time in your life, or maybe you're currently at a place where you, you know, like you're in school now. Some of you are working on higher education, and you're like, you know what? I'm working on an advanced degree, and, and uh, the reality is now you're situated into it, and you're maybe accumulated some uh, debt to go along with that advanced degree, and all of a sudden, the realization hits you, is this really what I want to do with the rest of my life? Or maybe you're a person that you're like, you know, I've been entrenched in this career for some time, and uh, I'm pretty far down the road in this career, but really, I'm not even sure that I've got a passion to do this anymore. Or you may be like, you know what, I don't know that I actually even want to do this the rest of my life. And you're like, what's going on? And you're like, where is this going to lead me? Perhaps you're a person that you're like, you know what, uh, I'm single, and I would so love to be married, and, and that's not happened yet. I've not met the right one, and what seems to maybe complicate that scenario is the fact that you've got some people in and around your life that it seems that they have met the right one, and you have not yet, and it's like, God, what are you up to? And there's mild things that happen in that regard where we like have, uh, you know, more mild questions like, God, why? And it's not like a major issue, but it's nevertheless, it's, it's a question that you have because you don't fundamentally understand what's going on. It, it may be more serious. I did about a week and a half ago. I went back to Northeast Florida uh, to the church that I pastored about 10 years before coming to Vitry 20 years ago. That's hard to believe. And I did the funeral service for a good friend of mine who was a part of the church the whole time I was there, an eye surgeon who was really in the prime of his life in many respects, wonderful family, wonderful career, and a sudden aneurysm took him out. And so visiting with that family and, you know, his wife sharing those three boys, I know that they've got this prevailing question like, God, what's up? And why? And why now? And, and um, so there can be some pretty heavy things in that regard uh, as well. I'll, I'll give you one on a, the lighter side, and I'm surprised because pastor has given me quite uh, the hard time about this. Um, I was recently, now if you know me, how many of you know that I've got grandbabies? How many of you know that? And they are. I know you think yours are, but mine are the most beautiful grandbabies in the whole wide world. And they're six, and they're four, and they're two. And I was just, it's been so crazy around the church, as you can only imagine. 
And it's about to get a little bit crazier, we think, based on what we're hearing at the South Campus with some reopenings and things right around the corner. So I was going to do like this really, really quick trip up to see my grandkids in Bloomington, Illinois. And long story short, I'll give you the condensed version because of my stepdad working for a specific airlines for a long, long time. As long as he's alive, I still have uh, flight benefits. So it's, you know, it's pretty cheap for me actually to be able to go and come back. So I'm like, I had my little sister and called her in Nashville and she lists us for flight. And I said, Debbie, I want to go see the grandkids. And, and uh, hey, look at, uh, you know, look at some flight. Or I said, Debbie, Jennifer, it's my little sister. I said, Jennifer, if you can get me listed on flight, find one that's looked like they have some open seat. Oh yeah, you're going to be fine. So not too long ago, I go to the airport in Tampa and I sit there and I just go and I've already checked a bag or two in. Maybe there were some golf clubs so I could play a little golf with my son. Well, that may have been checked in as well. So um, I go out to the gate and I'm just thinking, I'm getting on this flight. I know what Jennifer said. I'm so anxious. And I sit there and I get bumped I'm, I'm a non, what they call a non-rev standby passenger, and so I get bumped from flight number one, and, and I'm okay, all right? That has happened before, not a lot, but it's happened before, and then I get bumped from flight number two, and number three, and I'm like, oh, uh, you know, how many of you know you're talking to Jesus? You're like, Jesus, please. And I'm like, and then uh, long story short, I mean, it, it's just not going to happen. It becomes obvious. So I'm like, oh, I want to see these grandbabies. And, and apparently what I'm hearing from my son and daughter and all, they're anxious to see Papa as well. So I call Jennifer and I'm like, hey, and she's like, all right, here's what you need to do. Go to the Orlando airport tomorrow. You're going to get out of Orlando, I'm confident. And so I went for flight number one. And I get bombed, and I go for flight number two, and, you know, I miss it by three seats. Flight number three, I knew I was in trouble when I saw two uh, pilots in their uniforms with this particular aircraft carrier, and they're pleading with the gate agent to get a seat. And I know, hey, if they're having trouble, I'm in big trouble. Long story short, I drive home from the Tampa airport on Friday night. I drive home from the Orlando airport, and I don't see any grandbabies. Well, I'm like, what's up with that? And you're saying, well, maybe there was some turbulence. Maybe the plane had to make an emergency land, and it did not. It got there safely. In fact, my luggage made it. I think my golf clubs went first class, come to think of it. But I didn't make it. I'm like, what's going on? And then I'm talking to my, you know, Brent goes to the airport. I, you know, I text him the baggage claims tickets and, and he takes them and he says, hey, my dad, he's got a couple of things here. And, and so he's got Brody, Brody's too. And he goes over and he gets my luggage. And he said, dad, he said, when I turned around, Brody just had this expression on his face and he started talking. And when he started talking, his voice, his little voice cracked. And he said, dad, where Paul? Is him lost? <laughs> Call him on the phone. And then the next morning, Landry, she's four. She wakes up. She sees my two bags there, and she goes to her dad, and she's all upset. She said, you mean, and she's pretty dramatic in her personality, you mean you got Pawpaw's luggage, but you didn't get Pawpaw? And so there are some things that sometimes we simply do not understand. And again, that's of the smaller version, but there's big stuff, like the family I just mentioned to you. Maybe you're at a season in your life right now where you're like, God, this is going on in my life. This is going on in my health. This is going on in my family. This is going on in my finances. This is going on in my career. And God, I don't know. I don't know what you're up to. We've all felt that way, haven't we? Don't we all have these questions like, God, I don't have an answer here but I can't wait until I get to heaven. 
Now, there's this incredible uh, Old Testament book, and I was thinking about it uh, prior to coming out tonight. If, if I can simply inspire you and motivate you to read this Old Testament book this week, preferably over the next two to three days because it's short, then I feel like I would have been able to partially accomplish what God wanted me to do by motivating you to read the 10 chapters. It's only 10 chapters of the book of Esther. It is a fascinating book. You've heard me say this before. If somebody comes to me, and I love to read. Anybody that knows me knows I love to read four books, always going at one time because one's not enough. And, and I love to read. So when somebody ever says to me, hey, Jeff, I, I started reading the Bible, but the Bible is just boring. It's not interesting to me. You know what I know? They've never given the Bible a real chance. Because the Bible, how many of you are with me on this? The Bible is the most fascinating book that I've ever read in my entire life. And I've got some great books going right now, but really, I'm like, okay, I want to I wanna get back into the Scriptures. And I studied this book not too long ago, and I want to share it with you because it's a time in the life of the people of God when they're like asking some big questions like, God, what is going on here? And what they don't realize is even though they cannot see it, and this is often true in our own lives, listen, I want to I just state it this way. Many times in your life when you have questions like, God, I don't understand and what's going on here and I can't figure this out, I'm telling you, friends, in most of those occasions, God is supernaturally working behind the scenes of your life and you can't even see it. You don't even know it. You don't even have a clue as to something that God is actually up to. But God is working. And again, if I can just motivate you and inspire you to read the book, then I will have accomplished something. But what I want to do is I want to give you sort of the first half. It's not exactly half. But I want to give you first half of this by just giving you an overview of this book. And then I'll give you three things to think about, three applications. All right? So let's get into the story a little bit and uh, get the verses down if you would do that. So when you go back and read the 10 chapters in the next couple of days, uh, you'll be able to see some of these highlighted verses again. In chapter 1, we read about this massive party, and this is how it starts, in chapter 1. In chapter 1, and you can jot some things down tonight that maybe will help you go back as you do your own personal study. In chapter 1, we read about this massive party that King Xerxes has thrown and I'm going to put it, the verses guys are telling me on this screen, but during the time when we've been streaming all of our services, I've been using a TV, and so Linus had his security blanket. Pastor Jeff has his TV screen to help me. So they're going to put the verses here and here, I understand. So let's take a look at the first part of this, all right? Wine, this is the party that King Xerxes has thrown. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, Look at this phrase, the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. How many of you know already this is about to go downhill quick? How many of you realize this? It's going down. I mean, all you've got to do is just see that verse. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink, problem, how many of you see a problem? With no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. How many of you can say problem? There is a problem here, and you're about to see this whole thing unravel. And the, just the two verses we read, you have a pretty uh, good idea as to what is, what is playing out. You know, uh, just personally, and I won't get too deeply into this, but in my extended family, unfortunately, there's been a lot of alcoholism. And man, I, I probably, so when I speak to this for just a moment, I probably speak out of a higher sensitivity to most because I've seen how devastated, uh, devastating that alcoholism has been in our own family. And can I just say this? Because again, I've 
been around it uh, way too much in my extended family. I want to just say whether you're in the sanctuary or whether you're watching online right now, if you've got a problem with drinking, I urge you, urge you, urge you to get some help. To go to somebody that you know, to go to somebody that you love, to go to somebody that you trust and just be honest, be vulnerable and say, I've got a problem and I need help. You know what I've discovered? Because again, this has impacted my own family quite a lot. I've discovered this, that every alcoholic always says they can stop anytime they want, but they can't or they would. And so this is real big problem right here. And it's, you know, uh, the, the king, King Xerxes, has thrown this massive party. And I don't know the terminology because I've never drank. I mean, I didn't grow up like an angel or super sane or anything. It's just one thing that I didn't get into, maybe because of what I'd seen in my family already in terms of alcoholism. So I've just never drank. But I think the term would be like an open bar. And so this is like, you know, to the 10th power. I did a wedding not too long ago, and I think, I think you call it an open bar, and I was just standing over to the side. I was going to greet some people before I left after the wedding, and I was standing there with a Diet Coke, and I was just hanging out, saying hi to a few people. Somebody, hey, Pastor Jeff, hey, Pastor Jeff, and so I, I'm, you know, just hey, hey, and then I heard a voice call out, and I'm not sure who said it. They said, preacher, go ahead and drink a beer. We won't tell anybody, and I'm like, okay, don't think that's going to happen. Don't think that's going to happen. Not now, not later, not you know, but that, that was sort of the idea. So he's thrown this raucous party that's playing out here. And in his drunken condition, uh, the king orders for, and again, I'm just giving you an overview. The king orders for Queen Vashti to make an entrance. Again, everybody, you've seen what's playing out. You know it's going bad. And he orders Queen Vashti to make an entrance and to perform a little dance for all the people, primarily the fellows. Many Bible scholars are in agreement this most likely involved on the part of what would have been for Queen Vashti, a display of nudity, and, uh, and she flatly refuses to do it. And can you say amen to that? She's not buying into that, not for a single second. She flatly refused. In fact, this is still chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command because he had sent the command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became what, what's these words right here? He became what? Furious and burned with anger. And so now, not only is uh, King Xerxes drunk, he's now, I mean, he's, he's, he's an angry drunk. And he decides with the help of a few friends that if she will not, and you've got to see the story, you've got to read it, if she will not, not enter now, guess what? She's never going to enter again. He gets together with some of his close buddies, and he says, listen, you know, she's like uh, been real dismissive toward me, and you know, I am the king, and I ordered her to come in here and to do this dance, and so she's flatly refused, and so he gets his buddies together. How many of you know he didn't go to any of her friends? You with me on this? He goes to his friends, and, and, and they're like, what do you think we ought to do? And they said, well, I'll tell you what you ought to do, king, because if word gets out the queen, you like gave this edict, this command, and the queen has not come, guess what that's going to mean for all of the rest of us? And so, you know, they're like, hey, if she won't come now, she's never going to come at all, and she's dismissed permanently. Chapter 2. Now, chapter 2, this is real interesting to me. I hope you'll read it in the next couple of days. Chapter 2 describes an ancient beauty contest of sorts. 
And at this point, we're introduced to Esther. Now, what is interesting, and I got to hurry because I'm watching the clock and it's going really, really quick. But what is interesting to me is uh, King Xerxes, he oversees, and you'll see this in chapter one, he oversees 127 provinces. And so he wants, and, and you know, it's, it's silent on this, but there's some speculation. Did he actually ask for one lady from each province to be able to come before the, because he's got to pick a new, a new queen. How many of you are with me on this? Wave if you're following this story. Wave at me. So he's got to pick because he said to Queen Vashti, no more for you, so send me, you know, somebody that can become the new queen. And so they go into preparation for an actual year. Can you imagine that? 12 months so that one by one they can come before the king. Now, without getting too deep right here, but I want you to think about something. In 539 B.C., you may want to write that date down somewhere. In 539 B.C., Cyrus has issued a decree, a decree that all Jews would be permitted to return to their native Judah. Many choose to do so. In fact, I'll give you a number. About 42,000 choose that they're going to go back. But there's a huge part of that contingency that says, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to stay where we're at right now. We're going to continue to live in and around uh, Babylon and Persia, which, by the way, is present-day Iraq and Iran. And 42,000, think about this, when he issued the decree, King Cyrus, 42,000 go back to their homeland of Judah. Do you know how many stay right where they're at? About 750,000. And they don't go back to Judah. And much like it is today for some Christians in parts of the world where it's not easy to be a Christian, it's not easy to follow God in a culture that is not, you know, um, open to that sort of thing, it's going to provide a lot of problems for the people that are living there. And so it's going to present a unique set of challenges. And uh, I want you to just see this. Again, we've jumped over to chapter 2. Look at verses 10 and 11 right here. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, and if you know who Mordecai is, Mordecai is actually the uh, older cousin of, of who is going to become Queen Esther. She's not yet, but she's about to become Queen Esther. And because she did not have a mother or father, uh, Mordecai, her older cousin, becomes like a dad to her. Mordecai had forbidden her to do so, to reveal her nationality and family background. Every day, I mean, does this sound like a worried relative, like a father figure? Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So you've got a picture of that, right? Now, later in the same chapter, and again, I'm just giving you an overview. Later in the same chapter, verse 17, after all these ladies are paraded in before uh, King Xerxes, and he's got to choose replacement uh, for Queen Vashti, it says that he was very attracted uh, to Esther. And verse 17 says, it's not on the screen, but that he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen. Now let's quickly jump ahead because we need to keep moving. Jump ahead to chapter three. It's at this point that another character is inserted into this encounter. So keep in mind the key players. Are you ready? So we have King Xerxes, right? You with me? You with me? Nod at me. Give me feedback. Now listen, I've been preaching online. I've been preaching to empty seats for about three or four months. I love people. Help me out. Will you help me out? We have King Xerxes, right? Queen Vashti, she's out, right? Queen Esther, she's in. Mordecai is who? The older cousin who's more like a father to Esther. And now we're introduced to another guy, and his name is Haman. 
Haman's a bad dude. How many of you know that? Haman is actually an Amalekite, and many believe, uh, just on a footnote here, many believe that, uh, that Haman is actually no, uh, named after a former Amalite king who had actually been defeated by King Saul way back in the day. Now, again, without getting too deep because we don't have time to, here's something you've got to realize. There has been a long-standing ancient rivalry between the Amalekites and the Jews. Are you with me on that? Wave at me if you are. Long-standing ancient rivalry between Amalekites and Jews, the Jews don't like the Amalekites, and the Amalekites, they can't stand. Can we use the word hate in here? They hate the Jews. Now, who is the Amalekite? We know it's Haman, and he is highly, unfortunately, unfortunately, he's highly um, elevated in the kingdom, in the monarchy of Xerxes. Who are the Jews? Who are the Jews in this story? We know who it is, Esther and Mordecai. And remember what we looked at just a moment ago? Mordecai is like, listen, listen, Esther, you may not fully understand it all right now, but don't reveal your nationality, your family background. Now, keep this in mind as you look at the next uh, couple of verses here. This is chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. When Haman, Haman is a what? He's an Amalekite, saw that Mordecai, who is a, a Jew, that he would not kneel down or pay him because Haman's like really high in the kingdom of uh, Xerxes, would not kneel down or pay him honor. He was, how many of you notice there's a lot of mad people in this book? He was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, that's the Jews, he scorned the idea. This is an important phrase. He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. How many of you can already read what's He doesn't want to stop there. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy, look at this phrase, all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And he makes a movement to do that. Now, I want to just stop right here, and I want to use the balance of our time to give you three thoughts to think about. But uh, you don't have to promise or pinky swear or anything like that. But if you will at least give strong consideration to reading the 10 chapters of Esther in the next couple of days. Just sort of nod at me. Just If you'll strongly, you don't have to promise. It's not, you know, like a blood covenant or anything. You just, you know, you're, you may do that, all right? I'm not moving on until you, okay, you'll, you'll do that, all right? So I want to give you three thoughts because this is a fascinating book. In fact, as I said to you, There's no book like the Bible. It's the most interesting book that's ever been written. How many of you know that God only wrote one book? Okay. When you personally work your way through this great Old Testament book this week, I think you're going to notice three things. In the difficult and confusing circumstances of life, God is at work even if you can't see him. I want to just say that again because this is being played out in this story. Even in the difficult circumstances, the confusing circumstances, some of you may be at that place right now. Earlier in this talk, I mentioned, have you ever been at that place where you're like, God, what's up? What's going on? I don't understand what's happening in my job. What's happening in my family? I thought that things were going to be better. God, I thought that at this point in my life, I'd be further along. I'd be more successful. God, I thought that these kids that you blessed me with were angels, but they're not acting like angels right now. And you've got like these questions. And what a lot of times you and I don't understand, listen, friends, is even when things are discouraging and even when things are confusing, God, 
God is often working behind the scenes to accomplish his perfect will for our life. And we can't even see it. How many of you know that's what's going on in the book of Esther? God is supernaturally working behind the scenes. Let's go back to Haman for just a moment. He is so adamant about destroying all of the Jews that he offers to pay. Here's a number I'm going to give you. He offers to pay into the royal treasury 10,000 silver talents if simply the king will sign off on it. Anybody want to compare that to what would be a modern-day dollar equivalency? Can I tell you what that amount would be today? Here it is. You ready? $18 million. How many of you know that this cat hates the Jews? He's saying, I will pay, I will pay $18 million of my own money if I can kill not only Mordecai, but also all of the Jews. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. You ready for this? Is it mere chance that Queen Esther, a Jew, is in a prominent position in Persia? Is that accidental? Would you just say, oh, that's a wonderful coincidence. That is not accidental at all. God was working behind the scenes, even though, listen, friends, most people would completely miss it. Here's a powerful part of this story. She has been sovereignly and powerfully guided by God to that place because it has always been in the plan of God to be the protector and the provider of his people. Let me say it again. It has always been in the plan of God to be the protector and the provider of his people. And how many of you know that's not change for you? You may be saying, I don't know what's going on in my life. Look at what's happening here. Look at my marriage. Look at my job. Look at my health. I don't know what's going on right here. And I'm just saying to you, even though you cannot see him, even though you're like, I'm not sure what's going on right now, I want you to find encouragement that God has said, I'm going to protect my people. I'm going to protect vibe for my people. How many of you know that he had entered into a covenant relationship with his people Israel, with the Jews? But how many of you know in this modern era, you and I are a part of the body of Christ and Jesus has just as much committed himself to us as God did in the Old Testament to the Jews? Do you believe that? Can I just give you some assurance? Yeah, sure, we can clap for God. Can I just give you some assurance right here? If God is promising he's going to provide for and protect his people, let me just say this to you. Whether you're watching online or you're right here in the sanctuary, you are not to be about to be an exception to that. God is working behind the scenes to accomplish something powerful and incredible in your life. Let me give you a second thought right here, all right? When you read it over the next couple of days, here's another thing you're going to see. There's going to be times in your life when you're going to have to take a calculated risk, even if you don't know what the outcome's going to be. You know what the Bible calls that? Faith. Can I just tell you this? There are many promises and answers to prayer that God is not going to unlock until you take that first step of faith. And Esther had to take a risk. I mentioned already, I love to read. I want you to look at this statement. This is from Erwin McManus in a book he wrote called Season Your Divine Moment. You may want to read it sometime. This is what Erwin said. He said, when we play it safe, we squeeze God out of the formula. If we go only where we know and do what we're certain will succeed, we remove our need for God. Look at this next part. Whenever we respond to God's invitation, our need for God is heightened. Whenever we take on, I love this, a God-sized challenge, self-sufficiency is no longer an option. That's a powerful statement, is it? 
Can I just ask you this? What are you trying to make happen on your own? What kind of self-sufficiency are you leaning into? Well, I'm strong enough, really. Well, I'm smart enough. I can make it happen. I'm determined enough. I'll just grind this thing out. I'm going to make it happen. I'm clever enough. Listen, self-sufficiency many times robs us of the miraculous blessings that God wants to bring into our life because we shut out, just like Irwin McManus said, we shut out the equation of a God-sized challenge because we've got to make it happen ourselves. I want us to go back for just a moment. Look, this is back in Esther. Check this out right here. Now, so Mordecai sends word, and so when Esther, he's like, you've, you've got to go. You've got you've to talk, and you've just got to share, you know, with the king what's playing out here. And I'm just giving a hand. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, because she's like, you know, uh, if I go before the king, you know what that means. And you've heard Pastor talk about this many times. If you were to go before in this ancient time before the king uninvited, it could mean that you'd get your head lopped off. And she was certainly going in uninvited. Now, there's another part of the equation that sometimes we forget at this particular time. Political assassinations were prevailing in this time. So it was not only a matter of great honor, but it was also to minimize political uh, assassinations. But but, uh, Mordecai at this point is you've got to talk to the king. Somebody's got to tell the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think, because she's like, I don't think I can do this. I mean, do you know what kind of trouble I can get into? He said, listen, Esther, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, if you don't speak up, let the king know what's going down. Look at this, relief, and what's this word? Deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Next part. And who knows, and this is a phrase that most of you know most from the book of Esther, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, I go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. They're going to go into a three-day fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. Next part, look at this. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Here's a big, big risk. And she didn't know the outcome. And if I perish, I perish. Sometimes you have to take a risk even though you don't know what the outcome is going to be. A calculated risk. The Bible calls that faith. I wish I had more time to talk about it. Let me give you one more. One more thing, I believe, will be clear to you as you read these 10 chapters in Esther. It's an incredible book. God often causes miracles to emerge out of impending disasters. Let me say it again. God often causes miracles to emerge out of impending disasters. Pastor said it. Pastor Dan mentioned a few moments ago. I can't tell you how excited Pastor and I are about starting this new series this coming week, more than the stories, real people, real miracles, and we're going to see the activity of God in the lives of people, and we're going to come away with this truth that if God would do it for them then, then God will do it for us now. And God calls us miracles. You can read it for yourself, but in the latter part of this event, while Haman is plotting to do a public hanging of Mordecai, God stirs the heart of the king. Have more time, I'll tell you the whole story. One night he can't sleep. Even the king couldn't sleep. 
And he said, hey, bring me the books. And he reads through the books, or he's probably at a point with his affluence, he can be like, you read it to me. I don't even want to be disturbed with reading. And read. And he comes to realize that Mordecai had stopped an assassination plot against him. And he says, what has been done for this man Mordecai? Tell me God's not working behind the scenes. And so about that time, he's like, they're like, king, nothing's ever been done for Mordecai. Nothing. And he says, you got to be kidding. How do we overlook that? So he calls. This is the irony of the book. He calls in Haman. And he says, Haman, what do you think ought to be done for the man that the king wants to bless? And he says, you know what? I th-, and he's thinking, are you with me? He's thinking that the king is talking about him. So he lays out all of the, he says, I think he ought to put on the royal robes. I think he ought to get on a horse and have somebody lead him through the city and ask everybody in the city to pay honor to him because the whole time he's thinking about him. And the king, King Xerxes says, Haman, great idea. Go and do that for Mordecai. And Haman, who had intended, who had intended to have, um, you know, a public hanging of Mordecai. He had even erected a pole in his own yard for this to happen. He had spent $18 million to destroy Mordecai and all the Jews throughout these 127 provinces. But God had a different plan. I want you to see this. It's the very last verse in the whole book. It's verse 3 of chapter 10. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. Don't you love that? preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. And I love this phrase because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I don't know what you're going through right now, but this is what I know. Even though you can't see him, God is working behind the scenes of your life to bring to pass something powerful and supernatural. You may think you're on the verge of a disaster when in reality you are on the verge of a miracle. God is about to do something for you. I believe it with all my heart. Will you stand with me and let's give the Lord a great hand clap of praise. Can we do it? Thank you, Jesus. We bless your name, God. And Lord, I know that there are many people right here right now that they're like, God, what's going on? I, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on in my health. God, I don't understand, you know, that things have become so complicated. I know the COVID and everything, but I never imagined that it would compli- uh, complicate my job, my career, my finances the way that it has. God, what's up? What's up in my family? What's up in my emotions? Why am I so discouraged? And friend, I want you to realize tonight, that you may not see the hand of God, but the hand of God is working on your behalf. And if you would just say tonight, we're going to do a quick prayer and worship team's going to lead us in a song. But if you would say, you know, Jeff, I'm, I'm in a place similar to that right now in my life. There's something going on, and I'm so focused on the problem, the circumstance, the negativity, that I have somehow forgotten that God is working on my behalf. If that's you, would you just lift your hand real quick? Just say, pray for me. Just pray for me. Yeah. So God, we pray for every person in this sanctuary. We pray for those that are watching online right now. God, help them to realize that as challenging as it may be, as confusing as it may be, that you are working behind the scenes of their life even now. And they may think, God, that they're headed for disaster when in actuality, you're about to send to them a miracle. And God, if you would do it a long time ago for Mordecai and Esther and your people, you'll do it today. You're such an amazing God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
We'll sing this song together and then the team will dismiss us. Let's bless the Lord. Let's sing. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve. Sunday morning at our next worship experience.